morning. Good morning. How are you? Hey, that's what I like to hear. I see you over there, Dr. Branch. Uh, my name is Pastor John Nelson, and I, I just... Uh, uh, I, I got to admit, when I said Dr. Branch, my heart skipped a bit because he just docked my grades all the time. So um, I'm sure he's, he's grading my stuff right now. Uh, my wife told me that would probably happen. So uh, there goes my heartbeat. And I'm sure my Apple Watch will tell me I'm freaking out. But I'm so glad to be here at Midwestern. I'm so glad to be back home. I'm glad to be in this chapel. This is amazing. Uh, this is so amazing. This is the second time I've been in here. The first time was for a conference with some college students a few years ago, and I uh, hadn't had the opportunity. And where, where I had chapel was over at the uh, Spurgeon exhibit, uh, which was, it was small and cramped and smelled different. But, you know, it was a good place to have chapel. I used to sit up front every single week whenever I could. Um, and I did something every week. Uh, Dr. Swain, and no offense to you, brother, but uh, I didn't know half the songs, and so I would just stare at the screen. Um, and that also happened in Dr. Branch's class, too, because he would make us sing hymns, um, and I would quickly jump on my laptop, you remember this, and I would tap it in as quickly as I can to find the lyrics so that I could learn it, because I was still a new believer, and I was trying to learn all these hymns and all these things, and I had no earthly idea. So I faked it as well as I could. Some of y'all are doing that right now. Um, so what I'm going to ask you to do uh, while you're faking it is grab your mobile device. Don't jump on Facebook just yet. Grab your mobile device and turn to Ephesians chapter Two, Ephesians chapter 2, if you can meet me there this morning. Um, before I even get started, while you are finding God's word, I just want to say good morning to my wife, my children. Uh, uh, I, I miss them so dearly. My little Judah, uh, who is an absolutely amazing man. Uh, my, my oldest, Leah, Nehemiah, and Annalise, who have been holding down the fort for daddy. Thank you so, so much. Um, and I thank you so much for my church allowing me the opportunity to serve as the president and to get to travel around and bother so many people and cause trouble where I can. Now, in my church, uh, we're a little bit old school and new school. Um, I'm going to be reading from the elect standard version, but I'm going to ask you to stand on up in the honor of reading of God's word. You can stand for the Pledge of Allegiance and the national anthem. We can stand for God's word. Amen. There we go. We'll start in verse one. And the word says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work of the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, which were by nature of children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but a gift of God not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If I were to have a word today, a, a phrase for you to marinate on today, I would say this, but God, but God. Will you join me in prayer? Most gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day we've never seen before. A day that you have graciously given and given us command to do your work, to expand your kingdom, to be about your business. 
Father God, as we come into your word today, we do it with fear and trembling, knowing that you have something for us, and but by you, all of this goes. So, dear Lord, I just ask that you quicken our hearts. You open our eyes and our mouths to do the work you've called us to do. Father God, I ask that you use us as your tools, your vessels, to accomplish your will. Father, anything that is of us, crush. Anything that is not of you in this world, expunge. And do it for your glory and our joy. And all those who agree would say, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much this morning. By the way, at some point, if my legs give out, I'm wobbling like a baby deer. I was at the CrossFit thing this morning, and uh, uh, they did me in. They, they told me they were going to be online. I hope you all watch it. My legs hurt. It's your fault. Um, so in Ephesians chapter 2, you're all familiar with it. We're in seminary. I'm not going to go into all the pretenses, but, you know, the Apostle Paul's talking, and he's talking to us, and he's giving us, uh, uh, he's giving us a framework in which we have to work with, and, and he's saying very realistic terms, this disheartening picture of our lives, this very disheartening picture of my life and your life without Christ Jesus, and Paul's making it clear. Paul's making it 100% clear that we need a Savior because without one, we are dead. That was a good place for the Calvinists to say amen. There we go. I knew we had a couple in here. We are dead in our transgressions. We are dead in our sins. Without Christ, we are dead. We are dominated by this world, Satan, and our own flesh. We are doomed to face the wrath of God. Unfortunately, Paul doesn't leave you there. I love the fact that he doesn't do that. He, he says, come on, I'm going to take you a little bit further. He makes it quite clear. He makes it quite clear in this passage that the answer to all the problems that we have it cannot be found apart from Christ Jesus. Now, if, just a side note, if you use the NIV, the translators, I think, missed out on a powerful message to be communicated here. The two simple words, the two simple three-letter words that Paul puts right in the middle here that the translators get so right, but God, are cut out. Now, I, 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 I don't know why they left it there, but it's something left on the table that we should pick up. Because there's a sense in these two words that these are the two most important words in my humble but correct opinion of the Bible. But God. Because they show that when God enters into the lives of the ones that he created to work out whatever he came in your life and my life to do, it's amazing what he will do. It is absolutely amazing what he will do. Let let me tell you, because you don't know me. I'm I'm a little nappy-headed boy from around the corner. Grew up in Leavenworth, Kansas, went to Kansas State University, came here to Midwestern before it was like this massive, amazing uh, seminary. I went to a seeker-friendly church, and I bartended while I was at school here. So much fun signing that waiver saying I don't drink, but I serve them. That's how I paid my way through school. I was unconventional in every single way. As a matter of fact, I used to sit in class, and I used to make fun of the church planners. You, you heard my profile, right? I used to make fun of them because they seemed to know everything. They seemed to know everything. And I always said, I want to go to an established church or maybe replant a church. And I had ideas of what I wanted to do. Matter of fact, while I was here, a friend of mine, Micah, was, I was going to work under him, but he went off to be with Lifeway and become a big wig and get his doctorate and all kinds of fun stuff. And so he, he turned me on to this guy named Dr. Monty Schinkel, this bald-headed white dude in the middle of Jefferson City. He's from Kentucky. He was a pig farmer by trade, and now he's a pastor. There's a lot in common there, by the way. And in that, 
I learned from him the humbling work of pastoring. I learned how to sit under him, though we differed on so many different places, and learn in a very established, large, First Baptist-esque church how to pastor and love people well. That's something Brother Monty does so, so well. And then my but God moment came. You see, I, I told Brother Monty that I was going to spend some time with him, and, and, and this is something you hear a lot, but I'm going to leave and go find a church, and I'm going to plant my life there, and I'm going to spend my life there and die in obscurity. That's always been my goal in life. You see, what I didn't know is that my mama had grown up in, in Columbia, Missouri, and she had always said, baby, you're going to end up in mid-Missouri again. I laughed at her because they don't have Quick Trip out there, so it's the land of the cursed. <laughs> I didn't like the place. Everything closes at nine. Lights literally flash. It's confusing to me. I grew up in Kansas City. You know, things are open 24-7. And so when my mom said, hey, you're going you're to plant your life here. And, and by the way, you should check out Lincoln University. It's a historically black college university. It's right around the corner. And I went around the corner, found out they didn't have a BSU. And I just started fighting in my spirit going, I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want this. I want to go to a city again. But you see, what I didn't know is God had shaped me for that place. See, what you don't know is my wife is white, my kids are milk chocolate, like you know, and, and, and even my new one. It's, it works out really, really well. I'm at a historically black college with a large Jamaican population. I'm half Jamaican. I actually get to kill goat for them as a ministry to them. I get to work in a place where it's country and city, which I grew up in Leavenworth and bailed hay, but I came out in the city and spent time in the Don Bosco centers and off of Independence Avenue, now off the 50, uh, 51st hundred block. I spent a lot of time all over this city, and I get to use every one of those skills in my church plant today. Not an established church, but something new. Not, not a replanting work, but something brand new. Why? But God. But God. So many of you have plans for your life, and God is sitting in heaven laughing right now. At least he did with me. He laughed because these two most exciting and encouraging and hopeful words should penetrate your very soul. So it's no wonder that, uh, that Paul chose to put them right in the midst of this letter. Uh, he just finished writing about the total hopelessness of man apart from God. But, but these two simple words, Paul immediately restores hope. He restores my hope. When I thought I had nothing but God, when I thought I had something but God, every time I turned around but God, and I'm telling you in your life, that hope is where it comes from, but God. You see, things really look bad for you and I. Again, you're dead. You're dead in your sins. You're, you're, you're dominated, you're doomed, whatever D word you want to use, we're Baptists here, we can alliterate, right? And so in all of these things, but God, matter of fact, say that with me, but God. If you're online, you can say it again, one more time, but God, there is hope. Paul's about to reveal how God entered our lives to deal with death, to deal with domination, to deal with dominion and doom in our life and that we all experience at one time. And what I would like us to do this morning is focus ever so briefly. I only got 25 minutes. So why God would do that? Why God would do that? Why would God choose to enter my life and redeem me from the kind of life that I, that Paul described in chapter one? Why? Why would he do that? You see, in this passage, Paul describes three particular attributes of God's nature to bear in a particular rele uh, relevance of God's work in saving us. 
I, I need you to hear this today because in our verses today, Paul is trying to explain to you and to I, the, the, to the Ephesians, the riches that you have in Christ Jesus and how it all came about. I know some of you don't believe me, so let's go back to the Bible. Verse 4 and 5 says this. But God, I keep coming back to that, I'm sorry, but I'm going to do it over and over. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. I'm really amazed on how God responds to our lost condition. I, I'm, I'm a flabbergasted constantly. What we deserve is justice and wrath. What we get is his love. We deserve his anger and even worse, his disgust. But instead, God responds to us with love. I, I do this with my children all the time. I tell them all the time when they get in trouble, I go, hey, come here, come here, come here. They look me in the eye and go, daddy loves you. And they usually, you know, they're, <laughs> okay, daddy loves you. And there's nothing you can ever do to make daddy stop loving you. And they go, okay. And I go, so stop trying. <laughs> I think God does that to you and I too. Because our sin that we go back to over and over and over, you know the one you're thinking about right now, over and over, God says, I love you. And there's nothing you can ever do to make me stop loving you, so stop trying. Paul bears that out in verse four and five here. Because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression. He loves us. We think love is this emotion, but the kind of love that God demonstrates towards us, in which, by the way, he commands us to show the world around us, it's not an emotion. No, no, we'll see in a minute that he, he has moved with compassion towards us. And it's not, the, it, 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 it's not primary expression of his love for us. In fact, the passage, Paul, it was a particular expression of God's love for us in mind. Let's take a closer look at what Paul writes here. First thing that we notice is the greatness of God's love. Paul uses both the verb and noun, my Greek and Hebrew teacher should be happy, both the, the verb and noun forms of the word love. God's love is also described as his great love, his great love for us. We've already seen several times that Paul likes to use this kind of grammatical structure whenever he wants to emphasize the greatness of something. For instance, we saw back in chapter 1, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul wrote about God's incomparably great power. We'll see in more detail in just a moment that Paul is describing here without a doubt the greatness of the, uh, the love the world has ever known. But there's something about Paul, what he writes here, that catches my attention. There's something that's a little bit odd here, if you may. You see, he writes about the great love in which he loved us, but you'll notice that he uses the past tense of love. He uses the past tense of love here, in which he loved us, which God loved us. My first reaction is, well, maybe Paul meant the present tense. Maybe the translators got it a little bit off there. Maybe they were off. But after this week, spending a lot of time on this scripture and a little bit of further reflection, it appears to me that he really used the exact words he was writing about one particular action that God took in the past to demonstrate his great love for us. In the past, God demonstrated his great love for you and I. I don't know about you, but that should blow your mind. Like when we stand there on Easter and go, he is risen. Oh, you, should have, you, you had a perfect time. I like lobbed a softball to you, bro. Like that, was, that was an easy one. It's like eight foot arc, hit it. Okay, we'll try it again. He is risen. 
Woo, y'all had me scared for a second? Okay. Well, we yell that everything that God had done was past tense for us. His death on the cross was past tense. All your sins are future tense. Every single one of your sins were future tense to him. Yet God, but God still loved you, died for you, sacrificed for you, suffered for you, suffered for me, man. I'm going to knock y'all out and just talk about me for a minute. Shoot. He loved me that much. That's God's greatest demonstration of his love for us. God didn't just say, I love you. He says, I've loved you and I will love you. But if you're taking notes, I'll say this. He also responded, no, he also responded to my misery with his mercy. He responded to my misery with his mercy. He said, being rich in mercy. Once again, Paul uses a superlative to describe the magnitude of God's mercy. God is not just merciful, he's rich in mercy. I, I love that. He's rich in mercy. Mercy is one of those terms that we tend to use a lot as believers. We have mercy ministry and stuff like that. But we don't often, we tend to use it interchangeably with the next attribute that we'll discuss, his grace. While those two terms are similar in ways, they're not the same thing. They, they are not the same thing. So let's take a few minutes here this morning and see if we can ride, arrive at a better understanding of mercy and his grace. You see, mercy is God's attitude towards those in distress. Let me say that again. Mercy is God's attitude towards those in distress. So when God looked down from heaven and saw the way that we were without Christ, he saw that we were miserable, a life characterized by death and dominion and doom. The result was nothing else. He had mercy. Now, I know some of you guys look at me and go, well, he must have his life together. And if you know me, I don't. I, my life is a series of gaffes. One of my greatest gaffes ever, I was at a friend of mine's wedding, um, and, and, and they had sparklers. When the, when, the, when the bride was leaving, we would hold the sparklers up. It, was, it makes a great, for a great photo shoot. It also burns the dress. It's really fun, right? And so some idiot, I'm not sure who this person was, decided, hey, John, you should hold the sparklers. And I was like, great. And so I held them out, and I was handing them out to people. And I'm handing them out to people. And when I got done handing them out, I had the rest of them in my hand. It literally held it like this. And so I got the bright idea. Again, I'm not the, the, the sharpest. And I got the bright idea, hey, let's light them. <laughs> and so... If you talk to my bride, here's her account of it. All the guys huddle up in a circle, and she had the thought in her mind, oh, look at that, they're praying for them. We were blocking the wind. <laughs> and a guy's lighting it, and he lit it, and then she goes, at that point, I see this flame, and I see my, I was her boyfriend at the time's arm engulfed in flames. Mind you, we're on federal property, so you know, a forest fire is a bad thing to start, right? I'm engulfed in flames. I'm shaking my arm around. I'm stomping it out. I'm trying to get down, you know, trying to freak out. And my wife is freaking out. And, and here's the thing. I, I go inside. And I start uh, cleaning up with everybody else, trying to play it off like I'm not hurt like every guy ever. And I, I grab a Coca-Cola and literally my hand is so hot, I heat the can up. So I go and grab another one and heat that can up. And my wife looked at me and had mercy. She could have came and bawled me out. She could have came and fussed at me and be like, you idiot. She had every right to do that. But instead, she had mercy. Instead, she chose to take me to the hospital, watch the skin slough off my arm, literally. Yeah, don't, don't light sparkles that way. And have mercy on my soul. You see, 
That day, my wife had mercy on me, and she responded to me because she saw the sick and sad position that my heart was in, that my body was in, how much I was suffering. And that is different than God's grace because in misery and distress, that hurt that you feel, God had mercy in that moment. And God's mercy towards us, like the one, it has one big difference. God has the power to do something about your misery. My wife at that time did not. She took me to the hospital. She hoped the doctors could. I suffered in pain for weeks on end. But God has something that he can do. He shows, our, he shows tremendous love. As a matter of fact, he does this. He responded, if you're taking notes, he responded to our guilt with his grace. You, you'll see that in, in verse 8. It says, by grace you have been saved. You, you see, if mercy is an attitude towards those in distress, then grace is God's attitude towards the lawbreakers and the rebels. I'm going to say that again because some of y'all missed that. You'll get it for free a little bit on. Here he is. If mercy is an attitude towards those in distress, then God's grace is his attitude towards the lawbreakers and the rebels. Even though we deserve every bit of it, God doesn't want to leave us there to suffer with guilt. He doesn't want you to suffer with guilt. He wants you to be free. Grace is terribly misunderstood. I mean, terribly misunderstood. One of my favorite rappers died last week, DMX. Uh, I love listening to him. He was a troubled, troubled soul. He, he struggled with addiction. He struggled with abuse. He was horribly abused as a child. If you ever listen to his music, uh, I don't think you'd probably admit that here, but if you ever listen to his music, uh, he, he had a lot of dogs in it because he was so abused as a child, he ran away from home and lived on the streets, and stray dogs were the only ones he found friendship with. He became a rapper who would do all kinds of things. If you go on Twitter, you'll find all kinds of stories with DMX, uh, working with the common man and sweeping floors and mopping, just a common guy who lived his life, but he struggled with addiction. He struggled with so much heartache and pain. He was a broken man. And here's the thing that I want to tell you, and I need you to understand, that in his brokenness, God showed him grace and mercy. And God's grace is enough for his public sin as much as it is for your secret sin. DMX struggled, and he died in that struggle. But God had grace in on him. I have a friend there in town that works along with a lot of prostitutes, and he, he, he works all the time talking to them and ministering to them, and he was telling me just last night how he gets the opportunity to minister to them on a weekly basis, and here's the thing that's crazy to me. God shows them grace also. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's riches for us in Christ's dispense. It's not, a bad way, it's not a bad way to characterize God's grace in our life, but it's, it's not a sufficient theological definition. But one of, the best, the, the, one of the best theological definitions is only three words. God's unmerited favor. That's what God shows you. A.W. Tozer explained, expanded on the idea by saying that grace is the good pleasure, is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. Burkhoff one of the more, uh, was more to the point when he says that the unmerited operation of God in the heart of man affected through the agency of the Holy Spirit. The key word in these great minds is unmerited. You can't earn it. You can't get it. Now, I know we as Protestants, as, as Baptists, we believe that we can't earn it, but do you live it? Because so many of us live a life antithetical to what comes out of our mouth. God says, you can't earn this, I give it to you. Now what you do when you have it is a whole different subject, but you can't earn this bad boy. 
No, 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 you cannot. It is undeserved. Therefore, it leads to the conclusion that God's grace is the essence of free gift, a free gift given by God through Christ. Grace also involves God's power, his enabling us to, to do what he calls us to do, what he calls you to do. Does he call you to do something big? Now, I, I know some of the cessations in the room will freak out a little bit, but I remember sitting in chapel going, one day I'm going to be up there. And now I'm here. I, I didn't know what to think. I thought, honestly, I was just kind of an arrogant young man that, that thought I was going to be in all the big stages. But God. When I got the call from Brother Tyler and he said, hey, are you willing to come to chapel? I, I said, let me pray about it. Yes. Same call. When I stood on stage at the Missouri Baptist Convention last year and unanimously they applauded, elected me the first minority to ever hold this position. I wept. But God. But God. You see, if you know anything about me, I, I, I tend to like to throw lob grenades wherever I am. I like to throw firecrackers into things. I like to spice it up a little bit. I mean, I want to I keep you on your toes and get you thinking about stuff. And now I'm in a position where I have to be a peacemaker. That's hard for me. I'm in a position now where God says, hey, you have to walk in and press hands and kiss babies in that order and make sure that everybody knows that you're on their side. But God, you see, his grace has given me the power to walk through this time. He's given us the power to have Judah come into our lives. He's given us the power to walk as a family, to plant a church, to work with an HBCU, to do so many different things. But God, those are the only things that I can do. And that's the thing is grace involves God's power enabling you to do what God can do. Listen, I, I don't know how we do it, but we do. You see, Paul's writing here in a particular reference when he talks about the thorn in the flesh. That's the reference overall, what we're talking about here. And the general principle is clear that God's grace gives us power and ability to do what God calls us to do, especially when it comes to our salvation, especially when it comes to our salvation. He's saying that it's God that provides the ability for us to be saved completely and independent of anything that we're capable of doing on our own. But God, there's a young man I had in a church, uh, his, his, in he struggled being LGBTQ. He struggled a lot. I remember sitting in church with him, and he was one of the few times I've ever had this. Uh, we were talking about Jesus. He was an atheist, and, and, he, and he said, what must I do to get saved? You know, just like an ax. And I, I kind of looked at him like, I've, I've heard that twice in my life. My goodness. Uh, uh, okay, let me grab my Bible, go to Romans. We'll walk through Romans Road, right? Good Baptist. He received Christ that day. He was so happy. He received Christ that day. Fast forward about a year later. I'm talking to this young man in our church and he's struggling again. He wants a relationship. He feels like God has, has come against him. He feels like God is starting to crush him in his hopes. He's feeling like he can live out his sin without living for the gospel. And I looked at him and I said, I love you, bro, but you understand how these two work. He goes, but no other sin in the church is really called out like this. When I said, I, I hear you, and we have issues with that, and we got to work through that. I I I'm with you, but it still is what it is. I remember looking at him one day over coffee, and I said, brother, I just got to ask you a very simple question because I feel like you're going down a very dangerous path. I said, is God's grace sufficient? And he said, no. 
I looked at him that morning and I said, I can respect you. I don't like what you said, but I can respect you because at least you're willing to live it out. With tears in my eyes and broken heart, I watched that man get up from the table and walk away from his faith. I have begged him for years to come back, knowing that God's grace is sufficient. But here's the thing. He lived out a public sin so well that it drug him away. But I don't know if you've been online lately. I don't know if you've read I've Kissed Dating Goodbye lately. I don't know if you've read The Brother That Was in Desiring God Ministry lately. But there's many of Christians out there that are saying God's grace isn't sufficient for them and they're walking away. Generally posting on Instagram saying, I'm not a Christian anymore and I feel so good. Is God's grace sufficient for you? You see, what happens is you find yourself with that secret sin. It quietly eats away at you, and you think everybody's fine, and you think you can hide it, you think it's enough. It's not. You need to repent and put it down. I've been in too many places, too many times. My mentor, two of my mentors, friends. I have a, I have a ministry, a guy that I, was, that I was in ministry with, that I worked in a church with, that is sitting in jail in Nebraska right now. Because of his secret sin. God's grace is enough. Do not fear the consequences. Know that God's mercy is enough. He looks at you in your distress and says, I want you out. But God, let him rewrite your story. But God, let him do what he wants to do. Let me, let me share with you a summary of the differences between God's mercy and grace as I fill up my time here. You see, God's solution demands mi- uh, misery to God's solution is God's solution demands sin, removes the pain, and he covers your sin. Let me say it again. He removes the pain, and then he covers your sin. He restores forgiveness. Some of you need this right now. He he withholds what you deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. And although mercy and grace are so similar, they are not the same. They both have one common thing. We don't deserve them. But you get them. But you get them. All of us were once dead. All of us were once dead in our transgressions and sin. All of us were once dominated by the world. All of us were dominated by Satan in our life. All of us were dominated by our own flesh. All of us lived in doom and were doomed to face the wrath of God. But God, but God, but God responded to our lostness with his love. But God responded to our misery with his mercy. But God responded to our guilt with his grace. But God's grace is enough for you. I can ask you all day if you believe it and you would nod your head because where we are. I'm going to ask you, do you live it? Do you walk it out in your daily life? One of the most sanctifying things in my life has been my children. They have humbled me. Um, I was on a podcast recently. Somebody uh, named me on a podcast and my 12-year-old from the back seat very quietly goes, Daddy, do they think you're important? I said, no, baby girl, they don't. And she goes, well, why are you on the podcast? I was like, I have no idea, baby girl. They keep you humble. Um, Sunday in church, my four-year-old, my newest four-year-old, uh, ran out of the corner while we were in the midst of singing hymns. It was great. We were singing a song, and everybody's voice is raised, and he comes around the corner, he looks at me, and punches me square in the crotch. <laughs> Humbling. And, and, you know, it takes everything in you like, like 
backhand them or something, but you know, you, you love them. My second youngest, she likes, she, she's my drama queen. I love her. She wants to spin and be held, and sometimes she just, she just gets in her feelings about nothing. And she cries and snots and wants me to hold her, and I'll hold her. I don't understand, but I definitely will hold her. And my, my, my oldest son, he's the exact opposite of his sister. He has feelings, but he, he, he tells you them in Morse code by blinking at you. And he just blinks and blinks and blinks. And I, I, I don't know. As a matter of fact, for the first six months of his life, I don't think he blinks. So I think he's like making up for lost time. But, but I've learned with all my children is how to love them where they are. And their sin and their brokenness because they are all unique and amazing. My wife and I navigate these waters constantly as she teaches school and, and I pastor our church and we try to figure out how does this work and we ask God constantly, I need your help, I need your filling, I need your mercy and I have to do it here before I go anywhere else. And then there's glimpses. When my son comes up after I give the altar call on Sunday and his, tear, his eyes are filled with tears, he says, I want Jesus and I don't know why. Say yes and amen. When my oldest daughter cries, why won't you let me have Jesus? All right, you're in. We can do this. When my little girl is so scared as she walks down the stairs, she starts singing the hymns about God's grace filling her life. You begin to see the things that are poured out of your life are into others. I'm going to leave you with this. The thing I've learned through my children, the thing that I've learned about God, is you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. But God will change you if you allow him to. He will augment your life if you allow him to. He will move you in the direction he wants you to go if you allow him to. Or we can play the good Christian game and fight him for the rest of our days. Pray with me. Most gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that we each have had a but God moment. We thank you that you have been here despite everything that we have given you. In our misery, in our pain, you have been here with us. You have loved us with such a great love, mercy, and you've snatched us out of misery and brought us into your presence. Father, show us that your grace is enough in all things. Show us no matter what happens in life, you are present and we need you. Father God, I need you. And I humbly ask that once again, you show me your presence despite me. Move us today for your kingdom's sake, for your glory and our joy. And all those who agree would say,